Uh, thanks so much for reading for us, Grace. I read very well. I really like how she pronounced Roth as Roth and not Wrath. Uh, I don't know what the official pronunciation is, uh, but I just think Roth sounds better. It's got a bit more weight to it. Um, so that's how I pronounce Roth as well. Uh, it is fantastic uh, to be back with you all this evening as we continue to dig into Romans. Uh, it's been a pretty uncomfortable uh, couple of weeks last week. Uh, it was quite uncomfortable this week. Uh, the reading, as you've just heard, is a little bit uncomfortable because... Well, if there's one thing that churches don't like talking about, certainly that I don't like talking about, it's sexuality. And if there's a second thing that I don't like talking about, it's judgment. We don't really like talking about God's judgment on the world, God's judgment on people. Generally, as far as I can tell, there are two objections that commonly get raised uh, to the idea of God's judgment. The first objection is that it's unfair of God to judge. It's not fair for God to be a judge. One writer uh, who himself uh, professes to be a Christian, a guy called Rob Bell, says this, um, if your God will punish people for all eternity for sins committed in a few short years, no amount of clever marketing or compelling language or good music or great coffee will be able to distinguish that one true glaring untenable, unacceptable, awful reality. I don't think he could come up with any more adjectives uh, to describe just how awful he finds this idea. The first common idea out there is that it's unfair for God to judge. The second objection is that God doesn't judge enough. Now, that might sound like a strange idea, and it's not often expressed that way, but it's a really, really common objection. Here's what Sam Harris says, everyone's favorite internet atheist. Either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. God is either impotent, which means unpowerful, evil, or imaginary. In other words, if God is real, why can't we see him acting justly? Why can't we see him executing judgment when we feel like he should? So on the one hand, it's not fair for God to judge. On the other hand, God doesn't judge enough. Of course, the great irony is that lots of people hold both of these positions at the same time. It's unfair for God to judge. It's cruel for him not to judge certain people, certain acts. Do you see the problem? I don't really think you can have it both ways, at least not consistently. We saw last week that God's present judgment, his judgment now on sin, and let me be really clear, sin is the Bible's word for our rebellion against God. God's present judgment on sin is handing us over to do what we like. Some people think that sin, uh, sins are just the bad things that we do, but, but that's not right at all. Sin is our attitude to God. It's saying, no God, I'm in charge. I won't listen to you. I won't obey you. I'm the boss. One person has said that sin isn't simply law-breaking, but sin is law-making. It's saying, I'll decide what's right and wrong. And God's present judgment on that attitude, on that attitude of I'll do it my way, is to say, fine, 
You have it your way. God's present judgment on sin, we've seen, is handing us over to do what we like. And so to those who say, why doesn't God judge now? The Bible says, actually, God does judge sin now. He just doesn't judge sin in the way that you might like him to. And where last week's passage focused on God's present judgment of sin, this week, what we've just had read to us, is all about God's future judgment on sin. And of course, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because while we might want to see present judgment now, we know that some people uh, get away with terrible acts. And as far as this life is concerned, they, they get away with it. And we want to know that God will deal with things in the future. And it is a comfort to know that God will deal with sin in the future. It's a comfort to know that God will finally judge people who, as far as we can tell, it seems as if they've gotten away with it. That is a real comfort to us. But that is not the angle that Paul takes in these chapters. Because the people in Paul's line of sight in these chapters, it's not the Joseph Stalins of the world. It's not the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world. It's normal people. It's religious people. People who think, I'm pretty good. Those are the people that Paul is talking about in this passage. People like me. People like you. The passage we're looking at this evening explains how God's future judgment will work. It begins by telling us how God's future judgment doesn't work. Then it explains how it does work. And then finally, it explains why it's fair. I'll say that again. This passage shows us how God's judgment doesn't work, how God's judgment does work, and finally, why it's fair. And those three explanations follow the three paragraphs we have in our Bible, verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 11, verses 12 to 16. We're not going to have time to dive into verse 12 to 16 in as much detail as we might like. But in that final section, it's basically saying that God's standards, God's law is fair because we can see that those standards exist even in people who have never heard of God. At some level, we all know God's standards and we can see that in the way that everyone lives their lives. That's what the final section is about. If you've got any further questions about that, uh, I would love to chat to you about them, please. Uh, why don't you put that on a welcome to church card at, later on in the service? But let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at those first two points especially. Heavenly Father, as we continue to dig into these hard words together, we ask again that you would, by your Spirit, help us to see our own condition so that we may see Christ's work all the more clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the first section, that's verses 1 to 4, and that's all about how God's judgment doesn't work. Let's read it together, verse 1. Uh, there we go. You, therefore, have no excuse. Sorry, I don't know why the font's like that. It's, it's being very strange. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another you are condemned yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. 
If you remember last week, Paul finished chapter 1 by giving a really long list of offenses, of the outward manifestation of sin in the world. Uh, And he explained how this is present uh, all over the world. Do you remember those lists? Verse 29 uh, of chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles open. Wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hating, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and so on. He, He just keeps going. Some people, whenever this letter was first read in the church in Rome, would have listened to that list of sinfulness and thought, that's right, Paul. The world is a really terrible place. Thank goodness I'm not like that. Some people, whenever they're confronted with the sin that is out in the world, that is their response. Oh, that's not like me. I'm not like those people. Do you know anyone like that? I think if we're honest, we're all a bit like that, aren't we? It's really easy to spot the faults in another person, but not to see our own hypocrisy. What Paul is saying is that we are all like that. We're all naturally self-defensive, self-righteous, hypocrites. One writer puts it like this, where other people tell lies, we don't do that. We just sort of stretch the truth a little bit. Other people steal things, but, but we don't steal. We just borrow things and forget to, pay, forget to give them back. Other people gossip, but we would never gossip. We simply talk about other people so that others can pray for them and know what's going on in their lives. Other people are prejudiced. They have problematic views. But we, we, don't have any, we, we don't have any problematic views. We have convictions. We're not prejudiced. The reason that we don't see others in the light, in, in that, the reason we don't see ourselves, sorry, in that light, is because most of us are really, really good at hiding our sin, even hiding it from ourselves. We portray an image of ourselves to the watching world that we are kind, generous, caring individuals. And we start to believe those lies ourselves. We believe the lie that we tell the world. And we think that deep down, despite our anger, despite our jealousy, despite our lust, despite our greed, we're actually, if we forget about all that stuff, we're actually pretty good people. The lies that we tell other people are so good that we start to believe them ourselves. And we find ourselves thinking, God couldn't have a problem with me. I'm not as bad. I'm not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as Hitler. We always like to go to Hitler. We're not as bad as Hitler, as if that's the sort of benchmark of goodness. But God doesn't work like that. God isn't fooled by the lies that we tell. God sees, and God knows We delight in the idea of God's judgment against those obviously bad people. But we can't see, or maybe we just refuse to see, those same sins in our own hearts. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. 
So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Not only do we suppress the truth about ourselves to others, to ourselves and to God, we even think that because we've experienced some of God's goodness, some of God's kindness to us, that God won't judge us. We believe the lies we tell about ourselves. We think, my life doesn't look like the life of someone who is under the judgment of God. God couldn't be angry at me. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 4. Look, and the exact same thing was happening in the church in Rome, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul knew exactly how these first century self-righteous people thought. And as I look at my own heart, it's the exact same today. Back in Rome all those years ago, they thought that God couldn't see their sin. They thought that God didn't really care about their sin. They thought God was their mate. God would let them off because, well, we're not as bad as other people. But that is not how God works. God is not fooled by hypocrisy. God is not fooled by our attempts to portray the best version of ourselves. Well, if, that's not, if that's how God doesn't work, how then does God work? How does God judge? What are God's standards? Well, that's what verse 5 to 11 are all about. Let's read them together, all, of, uh, all five verses. But because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reduce the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger." There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It's pretty straightforward, really. Paul actually says three things here, and he says them twice. He repeats himself. And it's pretty cool the way that he does it. Now, I hope you're going to be able to see it with the strange font. Again, that's entirely my fault. But if the back camera could go up to the screen so that our friends in the overflow and online could see, it's pretty cool the way Paul says these three things. I wanted to show you this. In verse 6, he says, God will repay each person for what they've done. And then in verse 8, he says, God does not show favoritism. It's the same idea twice. In verse 7, he says, those who, by persist those who do good will receive eternal life. And then in verse 10, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Same thing, twice. Verse 8, for those who are evil, there will be wrath and anger. And then verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. It's really, really clear. God does not show favoritism. He judges the good, good and he judges the evil, evil. So basically, if we're good, 
we get eternal life, and if we're not, we're judged accordingly. Seems fair, doesn't it? It seems right. It is fair. It is right. But there's a bit of a problem, isn't there? There's a big problem, actually, because the question then becomes, how do we know what is good enough? Who are these good people who receive eternal life? The verses we're looking at actually don't spell out uh, who these good people are for us. So we're going to have to skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 10. This is a bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, We're going to be looking at these verses uh, in much greater detail in two weeks' time. Uh, Paul is going to keep building his argument, building his case. Um, The words that we're looking at are just the beginning uh, of that argument. And Trev's going to walk us through these verses in two weeks' time, so sorry, Trevor, if I'm stealing your thunder. But listen to these words. Listen to these words with that, what he's just said in chapter 2, ringing in your ears. Those who do good will receive eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So according to Paul, those who do good will receive eternal life. But also according to Paul and according to the rest of the Bible, this is a a chapter, this is a quote, sorry, from uh, Amos in the Old Testament. There is no one who does good. The good will receive eternal life, but no one, no one is good. If you're with us this evening and you think that you and God are cool because you're good, because of your inherent goodness, the Bible couldn't really be any clearer that God's standards are not our standards. You might not be a murderer. In fact, I'm almost certain uh, that you are not a murderer. I I would put money on it if I were a betting man. But God's standards are higher than our standards. Look at verse 16 down at the bottom. God will judge not simply the actions of humanity. He will judge their secrets too. If you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus, this will be absolutely no surprise to you. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You might not be an adulterer, but listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God's standards are not our standards. Listen again to what Paul said last week in chapter 1, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, greed, evil, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity or faithfulness, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul's really clear, isn't he? No one does good, not even one. The good will inherit eternal life, but no one's good. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? It's not very uplifting on a cold Sunday evening. I said earlier that there are two main objections to God's judgment, two main objections thrown up in the face of God's judgment. The second one, God doesn't judge enough, doesn't really stand, does it? Because as we look out into this sin-filled world, we see the judgment of God. We'll see, we see that God has handed humanity over. And we've seen from this passage that despite the objections, God will judge on the last day, and God's judgment is fair. I don't think Sam Harris' argument stands. I don't think Rob Bell's argument stands. Paul's been really, really clear, hasn't he? God doesn't show favoritism. God isn't biased. If we do good, we'll receive eternal life. If we don't, we receive judgment. It's fair. In fact, God, by, his very def- by the very definition of what it means to be God, is fair. God is, by definition, fair. We cannot level the charge at God that God is not fair because he is the creator The very standards by which we judge something or someone, fair or unfair, comes from God. Our concept of good and bad is based on what God has said and what God has inbuilt into each one of us. That's what Paul says. Look at verse 15. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them and at other times even defend them. Whatever sense of justice that we have comes from God. So we cannot say that God is not fair because God made fairness. It's impossible. But the real reason I think most of us don't like talking about judgment, don't like thinking about God's judgment, isn't because it isn't fair. It's because deep down, we know that we deserve to be judged. That's why our internet browsers have clear history buttons. That's why we panic whenever anyone takes hold of our phone uh, for a minute longer than we might like them to. If other people saw what we look at, if other people saw what we say about other people, If other people saw the things that we read about, the things that we think about, we'd be horrified, wouldn't we? We don't like talking about judgment because deep down we know that we need to be judged. And it strikes me that the people who I see go on most about judgment are the people that themselves know deep down 
that they deserve to be judged. It's pretty bleak. But that is why Paul calls what Jesus did for us good news. The good news. Again, we're going to see this spelled out in two weeks' time, in three weeks' time, sorry, in great, great detail. But we've already seen a hint of it in chapter one. If you remember back uh, last week, Paul's gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes in Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is good news because it means that even though we deserve God's judgment, all of us deserve God's judgment. This isn't about me standing up here telling you that you deserve God's judgment. All of us, no one does good. All of us deserve judgment. But through Jesus, we can escape God's judgment. Not by trying to be better, because no one is perfect. That's impossible. It's impossible to be perfect. But simply by trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus' death on the cross, where he took the judgment that you deserve on himself so that we don't have to be condemned. You can escape the judgment you deserve by trusting in Jesus. That's the only way to escape God's judgment. And that is really good news because that is really easy. This Tuesday, Emily has already talked to, talked to us about it. We're beginning the life course. And over the next four Tuesdays, we're going to be looking at how that works in really, really great detail, but also really, really simply, so that anyone can understand it. Just how was Jesus able to achieve that for us? How can we put our trust in him? That's what the next four Tuesday nights are all are going to be all about. It's the course is designed to be accessible to everyone. So if you have any questions about how that works, please do tune in. Drop a question in the Welcome to Church cards. Come along to the life course. Ask some questions there. I know that many of us here have already trusted in Jesus. We know the joy that comes from knowing that we have escaped God's judgment, even though we deserve it. What does this passage say to us? Well, for me, it challenges me. Have I told people about God's judgment? Paul tells people about God's judgment. Have I told people about God's judgment? Have I told them about what Jesus offers them? Over this next four weeks, we have a great opportunity to tell others about Jesus through the life course. You'll know, of course, that all pubs and restaurants are closed for the next four weeks, uh, and we didn't plan that with the executive, uh, so don't, don't blame us for that. But there, there really couldn't be a better time to invite someone to consider this good news about Jesus. Because it's really clear, isn't it? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We don't like talking about it, but we need to talk about it. So please, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, 
If you're not sure where your friend or your family member stands with Jesus, please don't waste this opportunity. And I think every single one of us falls into one of those two categories. Judgment is coming. God's judgment doesn't work the way we think he does. He isn't fooled by our hypocrisy. God's judgment is absolutely fair. And God's justice can be escaped by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray to him now. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you for this reminder of why what Jesus did is such good news. Thank you for reminding us um, what we need to be rescued from before spelling out how you have achieved that. Father, we pray that you would keep all of us from self-righteous, self-justifying, hypocritical hearts. Help us to be honest uh, to you, honest to ourselves about our sin, so that we can place our trust in the Lord Jesus. Give us courage to tell more people about God's justice. Help us do it lovingly and carefully and biblically. Because, Father, we know that judgment is coming. We give you great thanks that you've offered an escape to us, an escape from that judgment through your Son. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.